Hello and welcome to the Q York podcast. It's great to have you with us today and we hope that as you listen, you'll be inspired as we continue on our shared quest together. This podcast is entirely free and yet it's not cheap to put together and wouldn't be possible without the generosity of our supporters. So if you consider yourself a supporter of Q, then please head to qyork.co.uk and hit donate to show your support today because there really is no Q without you. Thank you and enjoy today's message. Right, good to see you. Um, we're in here, as we said on the text, because we, uh, we're not as geared up as we'd like to be in the back hall for um, the recording and, and the videoing. So unfortunately, I'm sad that we, we lost the week before last um, you know, because of that, and um, I think that was an important part of the part of the process. So we're trying until we <clears throat> get set up, you know, better in the back or whatever. We uh, we thought we can clump together in here and use all the expensive technology that we already have. So uh, yeah, so this will be my last hit at this for a few weeks. I'm heading out to Australia next. Uh, next Wednesday, so uh, wanted to get one in before then and then we'll see where we go from there. So let's have our hearts open and see, uh, see if we can learn something and, and receive something. I wanted to carry on again um, because I don't feel that we're done yet, just putting some more um, meat around the going beyond Jesus. And there's a couple of elements that I wanted to... Um, <clears throat> wanted to locate on tonight in um, <clears throat> in this journey. I I went on a bit long last week, um, not deliberately, but I did. Um, <clears throat> so I'm trying to keep it a bit tighter this week. Also, um, I've gleaned a few things from um, from Richard Rohr's latest book, which is um, The Universal Christ. So some of those bits I want to read to you, but um, I think it will lead us to somewhere that I think is important in this whole context as we go tonight. So we pray the Lord will help us and give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to receive. So let me, let me read you something, I've amended it a little bit, but something that Richard Rohr um, put in his book. Across the 30,000 or so varieties of Christianity, believers love Jesus and at least in theory, seem to have no trouble accepting his full humanity and his full divinity. Many express a personal relationship with Jesus, perhaps a flash of inspiration of his intimate presence in their lives, perhaps a fear of his judgment and wrath. Others trust in his compassion and often see him as a justification for their worldviews and politics. But how might the notion of Christ change the whole equation? Is Christ simply Jesus' last name? Or is it a revealing title that deserves our full attention? How is Christ's function or role different from Jesus's? What does scripture mean when Peter says in his very first address to the crowds after Pentecost that God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ? Weren't they always one and the same? Starting at Jesus' birth, to answer these questions, we must go back and ask, what was God up to in those first moments of creation? 
Was God totally invisible before the universe began? Or is there even such a thing as before? Why did God create at all? What was God's purpose in creating? Is the universe itself eternal? Or is the universe a creation in time as we know it, like Jesus himself? I think the point he makes there from the verse in Acts 2.36 is, you know, you read these things and it's only sometimes in a context when you come back to these and you realise what actually is being said and how that requires some further um, thought and investigation. This idea that when Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, he says, God has made this Jesus who you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Therefore, if he has made him Lord and he has made him Christ, he wasn't Lord and he wasn't Christ before he was made Lord and Christ. See what I mean? And uh, you and I, those of you who've been around a while, will have read those verses in Acts, you know, from the day of Pentecost and never given two thoughts to what the implications of this may be and how it might impact on our understanding of, of the whole kingdom of God and Jesus and God and us and, and what all this is about. So would it be outrageous to say that we have been guilty of trapping Jesus, uh, trapping Christ in the body of Jesus? There's something that we, we should essentially not just be aware of, but, but be experiencing, but we've imprisoned the revelation of the Christ in the body of Jesus, which is why when we started this whole series of conversations, I called it going beyond Jesus when we talked particularly about the, you know, the Matthew 1 genealogy. Remember the 42 generations, how the 41st generation is Jesus and the 42nd is Christ, that there were two generations and that all of our evangelical understanding of the gospel has only taken us as far as Jesus who is the one who saves therefore our whole belief system has been interpreted through the lens of a we need saving b what constitutes that salvation and c where does that salvation take us so of course we we started answer to question a we bought into the separation lie that you know we we from the beginning were depraved and totally separated from God and every human you know basically is an abhorrence to God and God can't look upon us because we're sinners and then of course because of that we had to buy into a way of salvation that was just as akin and parallel to the Incas throwing virgins in the volcano um, or, or some African tribe sacrificing babies which were all to appease the anger of the gods. So, so we then read and interpreted the cross through the gods need appeasing and the gods can only be appeased by sacrifice. So our version of virgin in the, in the volcano was Jesus and the cross. Now, again, don't get me wrong, Jesus is very important. The work of the cross was important. It's relevant, it's valid. But some of the impositions we have put on the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, I no longer believe to be the true reality. That doesn't mean I'm correct. We've tried to put, you know, some, some substance to why, why we would think that. So, of course, that led us mostly in the, in the Western evangelical world to the, to the atonement theory of penal substitutionary atonement, okay? An angry God 
his anger being satisfied by the sacrifice of his son who had to die because we would have died. So we, we've gone through that. And then, of course, the third, the third question I, I raised there, the third thing is we had to be saved for something. So then, of course, we got our doctrine of heaven and hell, which I, I believe there is, if we want to call it heaven, there is that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So don't think I'm stealing your, I'm stealing your heaven. I don't think there's going to be many harps. Uh, I'm not sure there's going to be any streets of gold, literally, or any gates that are made of pearl, um, or any mansions going around. Um, and I think, I think that would become probably pretty boring after a while. Anyway, whatever it is, we need not fear. Um, because in him is life, that life is the light of men, and you know we're in him. So whatever that looks like, it looks like, and it, I, I'm guessing it'll be pretty okay. So, of course, the other question then on the other side is if, if we then have what we thought about heaven, of course, and the punishment, then we had to have our versions of hell and what have you. And, you know, my views of that have changed very drastically, um, having, you know, in recent times looked at the, how the Bible really handles the subject of hell. And um, whatever all that is, I think a lot of hell is something we create. But I also think that the judgment of God or the... If there is a judgment of God, and I think there is, that it's restorative rather than retributive. And we had a retributive justice system. God will punish you forever and forever and forever. Uh, Basically, first of all, just for not saying, will you please come into my heart? So we were going to have a God who is love, but who would would punish infinitely for finite decisions of human flesh that we've already said were, were weak, and God acknowledges that, that we're weak, you know. Um, so you can see why we have problems with some of those definitions, but we have to still take the residual factors. So, so this thing that God has made this Jesus, who you crucified, both Lord and Christ, is telling us that, that Jesus was made something beyond just being... Jesus, but if we stop at Jesus, whatever it was he was made, Lord and Christ, we can, we can have imprisoned within Jesus because we won't get beyond those models that, that we have been served. Does that make sense? So, you know, th- that's what might make me draw that conclusion. And um, if all this is true, how can we free Christ from being trapped in Jesus? That's our objective. Um, so I figure if, if we can free Christ from being trapped in Jesus, um, then we can free ourselves into the fullness of all that Christ is and has been and is supposed to be. So, let me, me give you another little quote here. In Western Christianity in particular, the whole plot line of the story of humanity has been made to revolve around a single sin committed between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in a place referred to as the Garden of Eden. And this has served to create a Jesus cult, which sees him solely as the fix for the fallout of that one event and the means to make it out of here to heaven. If that's true, it would mean it took, depending on your maths and if I take conventional church thinking, it took 4,000 plus years of history for God to fully fix the problem. So if, if we take the timelines that we are given to say that, you know, Adam 
was 4,000 years before, before Jesus, then that suggests to me that it took God 4,000 years to figure out what we were going to do about the problem and be able to put together a significant enough plan to outwork. But for 4,000 years, I'm sorry, I can't, we can't really... You know, any responsible parent would say, here's the problem, here's the answer. So if Jesus was the answer to that specific problem, then my thinking would be this. Any, any responsible parent, which, which God is the Father, would say, okay, Jesus needs to come now. So you'd want to fix it straight away, wouldn't you? You wouldn't want to wait 4,000 years and go through all kinds of models about that that are not really that, just to say, these are only models for that, but in 4,000 years I'll properly fix that, but you can't have it fixed before that. You see, there's a... Now, now that, doesn't, that doesn't discredit the journey of Israel and, and the emergence of the, of, of, of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all those characters that we have had as reference points... But what it does say is that what the message of their life was, was probably not some of the things that we tried to impose upon it, sort of as a stopgap until God 4,000 years later could say, okay, now I'll fix it. Now, I do believe that Jesus is saved. His very name is he who saves. And I do believe that there is a, there is a, consequence from the sacrifice of Jesus which deals with sin but I don't actually personally believe that the specific and, and primary reason for Jesus dying on the cross was in order to take away sin but I do believe what the Bible says that it does take away sin but I don't think that was the purpose. I think the purpose was to me that the best, the best understanding I have of the cross now is, is a parallel to Abraham when God took him out and showed him about how God makes covenants. Not how men make covenants, how God makes covenants. He puts you to sleep. And he makes promises to himself and requires of you no promises because he knows if he requires promises of you, you're going to break it and then the covenant will be broken because you can't keep it. So God makes covenants with us that can't be broken because he makes them with himself. And we simply become the beneficiary. So I can, I can only clearly, in my own mind and heart, interpret the cross through that same model that God was again showing us and repeating to us that he's a God who makes covenants with himself. So in the sacrifice of Jesus, which wasn't blood and goats, it wasn't animals, it was the most valuable commodity you could have. God saying, okay, let's go to the most valuable commodity... The blood of Jesus, my son, to show you that I am making covenant with myself. I'm still promising myself about what I'll do toward you and for you, which is one of the reasons why I uh, lean more towards an inclusionist gospel now, or some people would call it universalism, where I, I believe there's a lot more in than are out, if there are any that are out. And that the work that was done in Christ that was finished is truly finished, not just for the frozen chosen, you know, but actually a redemption, a reconciliation that impacts the world. And of course, unless you have the revelation of the Christ, you can't, if you don't have a revelation of Jesus, 
you can't appreciate the breadth and the length and the height of where this reaches to because you have to understand something of the context of the Christ not just Jesus because if you only have the context of Jesus again I'm using this illustration he's the virgin thrown into the you know thrown into the the, the volcano or is or is the selected child in the you know in the tribal village to to get rid of the you know, EBGBs. I mean, it, it, you know, it, it's got to be something deeper and more than just a Christian version of, of how every other religion sees God, believes God's requirements are towards them, and responds to that. And that, that's what drives me a lot in this. So, so, so again, if, if we were to take that, we're saying that, that one act between these two rivers in one garden all those years ago, that, that, that predetermined a response from the Creator that in essence was, you're all going to be destroyed unless you can somehow get yourself out from under this problem. Do you see why I would have a, I would have a problem with that when on the other hand we, we talk about this God of immense love and God of immense kindness whose father heart is towards us. So... so so in that, that's one of the reasons that I actually said, and this is probably a, a bold statement, but I mean it, that I think a Jesus cult has grown out of that. That does not fully embrace the, the wonder of all that the Christ is, the, the, the revelation of the Christ. Now, I, I would also contend that most of Christianity's Christianity is not Christianity at all. Um, and, you know, I've, I've more and more over the last months been drifting into this, and, and um, I think part of that has been, you know, just thinking a little bit on, on Richard Rohr's input into the conversation, um, you know, because by very definition... Uh, to be Christian means that our whole focus and basis for our belief is Christ. But actually, for most Christians, the focus of their belief is Jesus. And it's right to have faith in Jesus as the one who saves. But if Jesus is not the prerequisite to understanding the Christ, we've actually stopped at a place where that's not Christianity, that's Jesusanity, or, or, you, or we would better call ourselves Jesuits, Jesusites, rather than Christians. So, so we have to also look, at, and, and Paul's a little bit responsible for this, because Paul was obsessed with introducing the truth and message of the Christ, which I, I'll, I'll show you in a, a few minutes. So we've got to make sure that our Christianity is truly Christianity. Let me give you another quote from, from Rohr's book. When the Western Church separated from the East in the great schism of 1054, when the two, two, it moved into two branches of, of, of Christianity, and I use that term loosely, West and East, we gradually lost this profound understanding of how, that's an important word, not just that, God has been liberating and loving all that is. Now, the reason I put that word, I, I, I emphasise that word how, is because I think all of us would think that we, 
we have an understanding that God has been liberating and loving all that is. But it becomes very flimsy when you come to the, how has God been doing that? Well, he sent Jesus to die for us. So that's all he did. So the only how he has been loving from the beginning is he sent Jesus to die for us. So again, there's all this group of people then for 4,000 years who are a little bit screwed, you know, because, you know, I know the types and shadows and yeah, we could go into all that. But this whole issue comes in of, 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 of we, what was gradually lost is the profound understanding of how God has been liberating and loving all that is. Instead, we gradually limited the divine presence to the single body of Jesus. When perhaps it is ubiquitous, which is a wonderful word, ubiquitous, which means present and found everywhere. So instead of just in the single body of Jesus, this revelation is being suggested is is ubiquitous. It's present and found everywhere. Uh, as light itself, just like light is everywhere. Isn't it wonderful and amazing how light is everywhere? Yeah. And wherever there is a light source, there is light. It, you know, you, you, I've said this before, you, you don't make a room light by removing the darkness. There's, there's, no, there's no machine, there's no, there's no, there's no process... Uh, known to humanity by which you can take darkness out of something. What you do is when you introduce light, dark submits itself to the light. And I don't know where the darkness goes. I don't know where the darkness in this room goes when we switch out the lights, when we switch on the lights. And now suddenly it comes back when the lights go off. But one thing I do know is that light's more dominant than darkness. And so in him was like the light of the world, Jesus, the light of the world, that we have to understand that something has come through the ages and into humanity. It says Jesus is the light that lights every man, that's every human, who comes into the world. Every human. He lights every human. So therefore that light is in every human. Now, you know... um, there is one thing that, I think it's Raw says it as well, about the fact that um, as far as science is concerned, there is no such a thing as total darkness. That there are, I don't even know what they call them, but there are these things of light that are still doing their thing. Even when it's dark, I suppose, I don't know, waiting for a moment, waiting for the opportunity, whatever, um, But even the darkness, the Bible says, even the darkness is light to you. So so this, we gradually limited the divine presence to the single body of Jesus when perhaps it is ubiquitous, present and found everywhere as light itself. And here's another wonderful word, uncircumscribable by human boundaries. Uncircumscribable. You, You can't put something around it Words, expressions, descriptions that actually can properly get to grips with what this thing is. It, 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 it's bigger than our words. It's bigger than our thinking. It's incircumscribable, uncircumscribable. Um, there's an interesting word there because you might say, you know, I'm confused. Well, the word confused is interesting because it's made up of two things. Con 
infused. Con is a short for the process of connection, and fused is when those things are fused together. I think, I think we have become confused about Jesus. What we have connected has been fused together, and therefore that being confused is now stuck. And I've probably been there. I would have probably, you know, 20 years ago fought me about what it is that I'm saying now. Because I was, the connections I had, how I connected things and how they were fused together were preventing me from breaking out into a fuller revelation of the Christ which goes beyond the body of Jesus, beyond our limited doctrinal thoughts and our denominational positions to something much bigger and much greater that, that is only available when we break the cult of just Jesus and let Jesus become the Christ that Peter said, he has made this Jesus who you crucified, he has made him Lord and he has made him Christ. That's the experience I'm looking for, not just I was going to hell but Jesus saved me. The creation narrative is describing the miracle of incarnation from the beginning as the model for understanding the divine presence in everything. So one of the things about the revelation of the Christ is, and again, I, you know, I don't want to go over all the scriptural references we've been through about everything was made by him and everything is held together through him, etc., etc. You know, we covered all those scriptures. I don't want to go all the way back there. But the truth is, the, the first incarnation brought into our awareness was not the birth of Jesus. The first incarnation that we encounter is the creation story. And again, however we debate whether, whether it is fully factual, whether it's partially factual, whether it's metaphorical, whatever it is, the truth is it, it, it relates and projects to us um, the truth of incarnation, of, of the divine not just coming into space and time but actually being in things right so so we 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 have been the beneficiaries of something that went beyond just it was not just gases floating around but 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 god made things he manifested himself in things so in form in trees, in animals, in, in flowers, in, in clouds, in beauty, in, 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 in water, in, in land, in mountains. He manifests himself, he incarnates himself, he puts himself into the picture in visible material form, okay, in the form of matter. So, so this miracle of incarnation from the beginning, that then should be the model for understanding the divine presence in everything because we would have no problem, I don't believe, in saying that when God created the earth, he was in all that. It was of him and part of him because the question is, how did it come into being? It came into being by the power of his word. And God said, let there be. It was the power of his word. 
And what was the word? In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. The word was the very essence that was pouring out of him. And of course, you can't speak a word without breath. And you can't have breath without spirit. So breath, spirit, and word incarnate. They make things, right? They make matter And God becomes present in matter when God is not matter, but becomes present in matter so that the matter, the earth, you know, he talks about the earth displaying his glory, right? And, And the magnificence of who he is, the trees clapping their hands. We, we, talk a little bit about it on Sunday, but uh, Paul talks about all creation is groaning, waiting for the manifestation of of sonship, of God's sonship, which, which in essence becomes the spirit of the Christ, because Jesus was only fully aware of his sonship when he became the anointed. The Holy Spirit came on him, which is the Christos. He became the Christos. And suddenly, boom, there's a manifestation taking place. So, so, so the model from the beginning was, was, call it God in everything or Christ in everything from the very beginning. So the first expression of this in creation is manifested light. And God said, let there be light. Now, we, we know from past teaching that the light that we have during the day didn't occur until day four of creation in the model of creation. So the light that was emanated, released, brought forth on the first day of creation was not the natural light, sun, moon and stars. It, it, it was something that existed without the natural process that we would see as light. Um, and, you know, we would probably liken it more to revelation. It was a revelationary light um, that, that was given, right? That was the very first expression of this. Um, so, let me also say at this point that the Christ mystery is the New Testament's attempt to name this visibility or seeability that light that began in the beginning the new testament particularly in some of paul's writings and i like the word seeability s-e-e ability that they are attempting through the christ mystery to get a grasp of this and and to deal with it as seeability that occurred on the first day the first day was a seeability so so what he's really saying is that when the presence of the Christ is in, we have a see ability. There, there is an ability to see. The point is, you could argue on that first day that what you were going to see was not the stuff that wasn't already there, wasn't there because that wasn't coming until day two, three, four, five, six. So, so, so what you needed to see was something beyond, beside, and apart from matter in existence. You were to see the presence of God in the absence of matter, but to realize that that presence would be 
in matter, so you already have the idea of matter and spirit, matter and spirit coming together. Jesus in the flesh, Christ the spirit, matter and spirit, matter and spirit. Incarnation is where matter and spirit come together, okay? So also remember that light is not so much what you directly see as it is by which you see everything else. Light is not there for you to look at. Light is there so that you can see everything else in the fullness of the light. And again, I think this is worth reiterating um, because in, you know, when I use the word Jesus cult, I'm not, I'm not trying to be hypocritical. I'm, I'm using language to get a response. Because there are certain elements in that. So, so how much of our infusion into Christianity was pushing us all the time to look at Jesus, stare at Jesus. You have to look at Jesus. He is the light. You've got to look at Jesus. Well, you just wouldn't do that with the light. It's not what you do with the light. In fact, you know, I've said if you, if you look at the, just the practical imagery of that, if you stare at a bright light, what happens? It actually creates a blind spot. And it's an interesting experiment with people, you know, I mean, I've got the bright lights on me for the, the video, but if I, if I stare at that light and then I look at you, I can't see your face. I see form but no face. And I firmly, absolutely believe after many, many years in, in a process of belief that, that being taught to stare at the light of Jesus, that what it did meant that I never saw people as people. I just saw them as shapes, as projects. Because you see, when you look into someone's face is when you see who they really are. And the truth is that element of the gospel was never about looking to see who people really were. It was about signing people up to something that we believe they should be, which was part of the church, part of that, you know, you've got to come into Jesus. But I'm not sure the compassion was really there for, for people's journey, for, for where people were coming from, from what was happening in people's lives. And so I do have this issue now that I think, well, you know, Jesus is the light but you just don't stare at a light. That's not the purpose of a light. The purpose of light is not so that you can directly see it, but it's that by which you see everything else. So we actually shouldn't be staring at, you know, trying to get in places where we just stare at Jesus so much as looking at our world and seeking to see our world illuminated by the light of Christ that's within us. So now we're no longer blind to, the, to the, the, the personality, the person, the individual, but now we see clearly because we're not starers at the light. And I think some of these are very simple lessons, but that's why I, that's why I use the term Jesus cult because our obsession would be that it's all there when actually it's that that flows to make us here. And I'll say some more about that in a moment. There are numerous scriptures that make it very clear that this Christ that we're talking about existed from the beginning. And we've used scriptures on this, you know, John chapter 1, 
uh, 1 through 18, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just read a few verses from that in a moment. You know, uh, what we've read in Colossians and what we've read in Ephesians in previous weeks, you know, about being in Christ from the foundation of the earth, um, you know, about, about um, things were created by him and for him. Without him, nothing that has been made was made. And all the whole thing of Christ is in all and everything, all that stuff that we've talked about. Um, so, so the Christ cannot be... If, if, if Christ existed from the beginning, if, if he was there existent, I don't even like to use the word with, but within, within um, all that God the divine was, then Christ cannot be, here's another good word, Christ cannot be coterminous with Jesus. Now think about that word, what's the terminus? It's where something starts or where something stops, Right? So Christ cannot be coterminous with Jesus, which means Christ doesn't start with Jesus and he doesn't stop with Jesus. He cannot be coterminous with Jesus. If he was in the beginning, because Jesus, as I've told you before, was only Jesus when he became Jesus. Because in the beginning was the Word, the Word was made flesh. Right? You will have a child, you will call his name Jesus. Why? Because his name wasn't Jesus before then. But you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You will call it. So, so this wonderful word that if Christ was from the beginning, he cannot be coterminous with Jesus. But by attaching the word Christ to Jesus, we can, if we're not careful, skip over it. You know, Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, we can skip over it as if it were his last name. So if you're like me, many of us, you know, we grew up where Jesus Christ, Christ was just another way of saying Jesus, rather than Christ was a way of saying something more than Jesus, of which Jesus was a wonderful and relevant necessary part, and Jesus was the Christ, but Christ is not just Jesus. So if we're not careful, we, we skip over that and, and it just becomes like a last name, Jesus Christ. Instead of a means by which God's presence has permeated all matter throughout all of history. So we're looking, God has permeated all mass, matter throughout all of history and Jesus becomes part of that process of permeation and plan that brings us again to a fresh understanding of covenant with its most valuable commodity, of his blood, but something more important because God is now bringing us a revelation about not the importance of God, but the importance of human. So let, let, me, let me just run through John, John 1. I'll just very briefly make some comments on this. I think this is the NIV that I've got here. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. That's the Logos. And, I, you know, I believe Christ is another, is another way of saying these things because Christ is a New Testament way of expressing this, okay? Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. 
In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it, or the darkness could not put it out, or the darkness could not overwhelm it. So in who was life? Right? I want you to keep this in your head. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Who's that talking about? Okay, just hold that. Verse 6, there came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. So the light existed because it was coming, Right? But the light existed before. It was coming. All of this was coming. Verse 10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Who's that talking about? You'll say it's talking about Jesus. Verse 11. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Who's that talking about? You'd say, well, that's Jesus. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor of a husband's will, but born of God. And you said, that's Jesus. But watch this. Because I could insert two words here. And then the word became flesh. So all this is happening before the word becomes flesh. Do you get that? And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So he being in the world is before the word was made flesh. Can you see that from what's written here? He was in the world before the word became flesh. All who received him before the word became flesh became children of God. He gave the right to them to become children of God. He was in the world and the world was made by him and the world did not recognize him. But this is before the word became flesh. So Christ was in the world, but the world did not recognize him before Jesus ever became Jesus. Do you see where I'm driving here? So, so all of this scripture down to verse 14, I would have said at one time, this is just telling you about Jesus. But Jesus didn't come on the scene until verse 14, but he's already in the world before verse 14. He's already sent from God before verse 14 in him is life before verse 14 and that life is the light of men before verse 14 so so the world has been saturated in Christ from the very moment that breath left the mouth of God which is a very human way of putting it and word created matter Christ has been involved working with And allowing people throughout those generations to receive him, to believe in his name, and therefore become children of God. Abraham was as much a child of God as as you or I, who asked Jesus into our heart, and yet Jesus hasn't even come on the scene yet. So I hope that makes sense to you. I thought that the word became flesh, then made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The one about who Peter says, God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ so that you could see the continuance of the incarnate Christ being present in all things. This is going somewhere, stay with me. It's interesting 
And this has intrigued me from way back in our Wilton Rise days, those who were ever there with us. It's interesting that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man 87 times in the Gospels. In fact, if you look for Jesus referring himself to the Son of God, you'll find a couple of possible proof texts of Jesus acknowledging or saying himself, not someone saying of him, that he was the Son of God. Do you know, do you know who predominantly used the term Son of God in the context of Jesus? Those who the Gospels called demon-possessed were the ones who most consistently referred to Jesus as Son of God. Jesus never, except from those two little things that we, we could talk about, but they're not of significance, he never referred to or drew attention to himself being the Son of God. His whole focus was drawing attention to him being Son of Man. Okay? He was drawing attention not to his divinity, but his humanity. Therefore, I have to say the great emphasis in the Word made flesh was not the spirituality, but the humanity. And what we've done, we took Jesus, but instead of understanding the emphasis was on his humanity, we made the emphasis on his spirituality. So we took the revelation of the Christ, which is the true spirituality, which goes way beyond anything we ever thought, and we stuffed it into Jesus, and then we sewed that up, and we, and we glued the joints so that you couldn't get at who the Christ really was. And so we, we finished up with, with the Jesus who, he is the son of God. When Jesus is saying, I want you to see me as son of man. Which is extremely important. So frankly, I would have to say from, from the gospel evidence that Jesus came to show us how to be human much more than how to be spiritual. And then we've spent a lifetime trying to devise what it means to be spiritual rather than trying to absorb and understand and be comfortable with what it is to be human, realising that to be human is just as spiritual as what we thought was to be spiritual because it's an incarnate revelation. The world was spiritual from the very beginning because it was made from breath and word. Spirit. So the truth is, Jesus is the archetypal human, just like us. You know, verses in Hebrews, he was, he was tempted in all points just like we are. He was made to be like us in every way so that he could fully represent us. And he showed us what the full human might look like if we could fully live into it. Jesus was showing us what the full human might look like if we could fully live into it. That's why... You don't read anywhere in all of the Gospels Jesus ever saying, worship me. You only ever hear Jesus saying, follow me. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't worship him. It doesn't mean that it's not appropriate to worship him because of what he is, who he is to us and what he is in our lives and then the fuller revelation of the Christ but what Jesus was showing is that was never the point of this to get a bunch of people who would stare at the light and worship him. The point of this was, like Jesus in the earth, that we live by the light 
so that we might follow, and in doing that, in our own lives, in our own minds, in our own world, and out into the world, that we might realise what it is to be fully human and to celebrate, to celebrate the gift of our humanity and the uniqueness of it. Now, on the other hand, Christ is a good and simple metaphor for, for absolute wholeness, complete incarnation and the integrity of creation. So that's what the Christ represents. So in those two together is where the mix comes. Now, now let me quote again a little bit from Richard Roy. In his letters, Paul rarely, if ever, quotes Jesus himself directly. Just like I've said to you, it's very interesting that Paul almost never preaches from Scripture when you read Paul teaching and preaching, which is fascinating, isn't it? Paul rarely, if ever, quotes Jesus himself directly. Rather, he writes from a place of trustful communication with the divine presence who blinded him on the road to Damascus. Paul's driving mission was, and I quote from Acts 9.22, to demonstrate that Jesus was the Christ. Now, if you have imprisoned Christ within Jesus, all that means is that Christ was the Messiah. But, but this thing is way beyond any messianic concept. So, so his driving mission was to demonstrate Jesus was the Christ, which is why we are called Christians to this day and not Jesuits. Describing the encounter in his letter to the Galatians, Paul writes a most telling line. He does not say, God revealed his son to me, as you might expect. Instead, instead he says, God revealed his son in me. That's in Galatians 1 verse 16. Not that God revealed his son to me, but God revealed his son in me. That's why Paul is consistently harping on about the Christ. Now, I don't know if you realise it, you probably haven't gone and bothered to count. But Paul uses the phrase, in Christ, 164 times in his letters. You think he's trying to get something across? He, he talks about Jesus, he talks about Jesus Christ, he talks about Christ Jesus. But his, his predominant weight of emphasis is this phrase, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. It's this idea that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. So coming back to what he says, God revealed his son in me and now I am in him. So, so Paul's driving revelation is to try and get us to, to grasp something about what it means not just to belong to Jesus, but to be in Christ. And because we talked about how, you know, the great mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory, but we're not going there again. So let me, some more uh, adjusted quotes from him. Jesus Christ is the amalgam of matter and spirit. Jesus Human, matter, Christ, spirit. So it's the amalgam of matter and spirit put together, Jesus Christ. When we say Jesus Christ, we're talking about matter and spirit together, okay? We're talking about something that was before we ever existed and something that is beyond our existence that somehow meets and cooperates and coordinates together in this moment, in us. It's so that we ourselves can put it together in all places. 
Because it's, it's matter and spirit put together in one place. Jesus was the one place where matter and spirit comes together so that we can together, we can put it together, matter and spirit in all places, and enjoy things in their fullness. It can even enable us to see as God sees. And if that is not expecting too much, this will inspire us in, to an incarnational worldview, which takes in what we've, we've talked about. Okay, let's move this on. All of past and future meet in the body of Jesus, where for the first and fullest time, the divine shares the challenges we face in a human body. Doubtless something happened at the Jordan that was a point of change even for Jesus. Do you remember that in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus is, Luke chapter 3, Jesus is baptised by John in the Jordan, and that's when... You know, he says that the heavens opened and a voice spoke and the Holy Spirit descended on him in the form of a dove and the voice said, this is my son, you know, who I love and I'm pleased with him. And of course, that, the words there was he was Christos, he was anointed, something came on him, the Christos came on him. So you have this incredible, um, incredible reality that Jesus was about 30 when that happens, Luke chapter 3 tells us. Um, and then you piece together the Jesus story that up to that time, he hadn't done what we would perceive as a miracle. He hadn't preached his messages. He hadn't taught what he taught. He hadn't fed the multitudes. He hadn't, you know, hadn't healed the sick. And then, of course, if you, you know, go to Acts 2, 28, is it? says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power who went about doing good, healing all those who were oppressed of the devil because God was with him. So this whole thing that, that I could argue to simplify it, that until Jesus became the Christ, the matter-spirit coordinate didn't, it didn't work. But when Jesus became the Christ, something dynamic started to come out of him but what it made him was fully human and in that fully humanness stuff started to flow through that channel that we would call miracle we would call presence we would call provision but it happened because of that so 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 this all happened when Jesus was baptized at, at the Jordan um, and that was the point of change even for Jesus and if you look at what immediately follows, it gives you some indicators as to what is the primary starting point of the release of the revelation, not just the revelation of the Christ, but a grasp of the presence of Christ in me, I in Christ, the Christ that's bigger than just my matter existence, all begins to emerge from, from this story. But there's something very specific that I believe is the key to, to, to the flow of this. And what follows is, is what I would call the crisis of identity. So Jesus has a crisis of identity. Who am I really? And what I would propose to you is that our own contentment, our own sense of well-being, our own ability to function and fulfill 
what we were truly gifted to do, our ability to be fully human, all actually hinges on this one issue of the crisis of identity. Um, Again, using the idea of the Jesus cult, and you understand I'm, I'm using this to grab your attention with this. The idea that we lose our identity in Jesus, I believe, is not biblical. I believe what he came to do was not get us to lose our identity in him, but to get us to receive the same Christ spirit that was in him. So the, so the, the mystery is Christ in you, Christ in you, Christ in Jesus, Christ in you, the hope of glory, the expression. And so, so this is the Christ of identity. So what happens with that, and this is the practical issue that brings us towards where I, I wanted to take us tonight, um, Luke chapter 4 says that he was led by the Spirit into the desert where for 40 days and 40 nights he was hungry and then he was tempted by the devil. So he was led by the Spirit towards an encounter that was really asking the question, have you really got it? Have you got this? What was the... It, the it was the heavens open, the Father's voice saying, you're my son, right? This is who you are, you're my son. Here's how I feel about you. I love you, and here's my measurement of everything you've done. I am pleased with you. Now, when you look at the issue that up to this point, we have no record other than Jesus at the temple when he was 12 years of age talking to the elders in the temple. We have, we have no record of him doing. But the Father's pleased with him. So it can't be that the Father's pleased with him because of his doing. It must be that the Father's pleased with him because of pure acceptance and because of love you're my, and because of who he is to the Father. You're my son. I love you. I'm pleased with you. So that gets tested. And, and the issue is for all of us, what gets really tested in our attempts to really get a hold of who the Christ really is in us it, it, it all gets tested, and it gets tested not, I believe, by some, you know, uh, pseudo-spiritual devil. I'm not even sure in the account of Jesus in the wilderness that, that a physical devil came and talked to him. Um, I'm, not, I'm just not sure about that. Um, I've met the devil in the desert. I've, first of all, I've been in too many deserts. And secondly, I've met too many devils. Um, but you know what I discovered? That, that devil was invariably me. It, it was all the, all the things that I throw at myself in self-doubt, in self-condemnation, 
in self-rejection. Because here's the summary. Do you remember there were, there's three recorded temptations when he was hungry? You know, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become bread. Um, you know, you, where, what you, why don't you short-circuit the second one, what you're doing? If you'll bow down to me, I'll give you the kingdoms of the earth. Third one, go, go and throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple and let the angels save you. And then here's the summary of those three things. If you are who you think you are, prove it. And so the great trap was, was the trap of the ages of, of trying to entice Jesus with his humanity who, who is now getting to grips with his, with his spirituality in the Christ that's now on him and in him, just like with Paul, his great struggle and his great battle is, I must have to prove this some way. And how we begin to mess up the whole issue of our true identity is when we fall into the trap of, if you are who you think you are, prove it. How many times has it gone through your mind, well, if you were really a Christian, you wouldn't have this. Well, if you really knew how to pray, you'd have got that. You know, if, if, you, really, if you really were honouring God, that wouldn't have happened. And somehow that, that inner voice, that inner depth, because remember, you know, the terms devil and Satan in the Bible are, are really, we, we've made them beings when actually, um, you know, the word Satan is adversary, means an adversary. So anything that's an adversary or adversarial in biblical terms is a Satan. So I've been Satan to me more times than I care to mention. I've been adversarial and all the time it's usually the same thing. Of if you are who you think you are, then prove it. It's all about identity. And that's why, you know, and, and devil, what's the one for devil? It's, it's um, accuser. accuser. So devil is an accuser. Satan is an adversary. So it doesn't actually have to be a physical, spiritual being because, heck, we can be that to ourselves so easy in the deserts of our life. But it's always the same. The challenge is always to try and disrupt our acceptance of the identity that we have. The greatest problem that we all have with embracing the miracle of the revelation of the Christ is that it gives us an identity that we don't we believe we deserve, that we don't believe we should have, and that we don't believe that we could live up to. So if we slide that back to Jesus, what we're able to say is, oh, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. You know, in me, all that's in me is sinfulness, but thank God, when God sees me through Jesus, thank God he still loves me because he sees me through Jesus. In other words, he doesn't really love you. He loves Jesus, but he doesn't love you. And you're just sliding in because instead of looking at you, he looks at Jesus. Do you see how that's got real problems with it? But you see, the issue is when you come to the Christ, there has to be a confidence like Jesus heard, you're my son, I love you, I'm pleased with you. And immediately he is tested to not believe that he's truly a son who's loved, with whom God is pleased, and that in order for that to be a reality, he must have to do something. He must have to put in the effort. 
But Jesus resisted that, didn't get drawn into it by degrading the identity that God had placed upon him. So the way of the will of God, because this is the other struggle that we have because of identity. Well, what's the will of God? Have I fulfilled the will of God? Am I in the will of God? Is what I'm doing the will of God? Well, the way of the will of God is not found in knowing what to do. I don't particularly believe that there is like a will of God. I think there are some things potentially in one's life that God can speak and say, come on, you really, let's do this. I don't think we're condemned if we don't do them. But I think it's something God in his grace comes and says, this would be really good for you, do this, or go there, or meet this person, or whatever. But, but the way of the will of God is not found in knowing what to do. I've, I've brought this in other measures to you before. Because um, we think, that, you know, how many times have we prayed, Lord, show me what to do. God, if you just show me what to do, show me what I'm supposed to do. Wrong prayer. As soon as we pray that prayer, we have questioned our identity in believing that in that subservience and weakness, we are getting it wrong, we probably will get it wrong, we better have this something or this someone who is somewhere else to give us this inspiration into our weakness and failure, but then, you know, we just, just as, as worms and undeserving, we... You know, the whole thing about, you know, grace, grace is, for, is about, um, what's the undeserving? Grace, it's the phrase that's often used about, about grace. Yeah, that, that grace gives me what I don't deserve. No, grace makes you deserving. So that you can honestly say, I actually deserve to be loved by God because I was made by him. And because he values me, I can, I can with all confidence receive that love and not feel, oh, you know, it's just, well, thank you for loving me. I, I can stand tall and stand proud in my humanity and say, God loves me. He's pleased with me, not because of anything I've done, but because of what is in me, the very constituency that he's in me, the Christ in me. He is pleased with me and he loves me. So the way, of, the way of the will of God is not found in knowing what to do and through, and through it discovering, hopefully, who you are because that's, that's the way we do it. We try to find our identity through doing. We do it all the time in life. You know, we, we work in our jobs often to find identity. And it, isn't it interesting that... that um, when you say some, when you ask a person a question, you know, tell me something about yourself. Our, our response usually is we tell people what we do, because our whole identity has been drilled into us subconsciously, is connected to what we do. So, so therefore, we are successes or failures according to what we do, never because of who we are. So, therefore, acceptance. We only understand acceptance in terms of what we do. And if we don't do what's right, we don't expect acceptance. We expect rejection. And that's where, again, we have to go back into our thoughts about Jesus because somehow I have to get myself accepted because I haven't done what is right. So, so we don't find that. We don't discover who we are through what we do. 
But, but there's this wonderful reality that when Jesus knew who he was, he knew what to do. He wasn't when Jesus was told what to do, he discovered who he was. It's when he knew who he was, he knew what to do. So the key to all of his manifestation of the Christ in him was all directly and completely connected to his identity and his willingness to accept the identity that was given him by the Father that was put in him and given to him that stretched all the way back as far as creation ever goes, that was flowing into that space of his humanity of matter and spirit together and the identity of love by God. So the Christ struggle in all of us is not about knowing what to do, but it's of knowing truly who you are fully. And when you fully receive the Christ who was in all things from the beginning, you realise your identity is tied not just to this minuscule moment of your existence, but your identity is tied all the way back to the word in the beginning, to, to the breath that was breathed into all things, and you've become part of that process. That is your identity. So the Christ mystery anoints all physical matter with eternal purpose from the very beginning. So when we get this mystery and get our identity, it anoints our physical matter with eternal purposes from the very beginning. So here's, I'm going to finish now, we've, we've said enough, but let me make these statements. So question, does Jesus have a body? Yes. Some of you might say yes, some of you might say, well, I don't know. If he does have a body, what does it look like? And where is it? Now, I could say technically, biblically, if we're talking about Jesus, Jesus has a body, but he only had a body from when he became Jesus. So from the nativity, he has a body. And that then Jesus' body is physically crucified, but then he physically rises from the dead and, and he physically ascends to the Father. And if we believe what Hebrews says, he physically sits at the right hand of God. Now, again, symbolically how that looks, I don't know. You know, we humans, we have to understand in those kind of pictures. But the other question is, does Christ have a body? And what does it look like? And where is it? So here's the issue. Does Jesus have a body? Yes. What does it look like? It looks like Jesus. Where is it? At the right hand of the Father, whatever that means. Does Christ have a body? Yes. What does it look like? He looks like me. He looks like you. And where is it? It's here. Now. Because the issue is not you are the body of Jesus. The issue is you are the body of Christ. Which means the very empowerment that was in the matter, the physical matter of the physical Jesus is the very same spirit, the very same Christ that is in you and I. And he says that you are Christ's body. Christ is the head and you are the body. The whole thing fitted together, flowing. That's not Jesus, that's Christ. That's the whole thing that from the beginning 
flows through us. Now the truth is if we can grasp that identity and realise that's, that's what I am, I am Christ's body in the earth and it's here, then the truth is all that we talked about right from the beginning about the flow can flow through us and we can have the full revelation of all that that manifests in all the ways we talked about the last couple of weeks. So let me give you um, one last verse from Colossians 1.23, but I don't know which version it's from, but it's a fantastic it's a fantastic version. So let me close with this. It says, Never let yourself drift away from the hope promised by the good news. This is the good news. Which has been preached to every creature under heaven. And of which I, Paul, have become the servant. Question. Did Paul preach to every creature under heaven? Did even Paul and everybody else who'd thrown the hat in the ring with all this? Peter, Apollos, James. Did they preach to every creature under heaven? And the answer would have to be, no. Have we preached to every creature under heaven? And the answer is still no. But Paul says, never let yourself drift away from the hope promised by the good news which has been preached to every creature under heaven. How has it come to them? It's come to them because of the Christ in all things who is the one who brings to life because he is the light and he begins the light that people can see so that as they respond, they can have a revelation of the Christ. Is Jesus important? Yes. Is Jesus the saviour? Yes. If I never heard the name of Jesus, can I still be, let's use the term saved? The answer is absolutely yes, because Christ has been preached to every creature. And we, we've had a privilege to have the model of, of understanding the, the, the particular incarnation of Jesus in the flesh, the word in the flesh. But I hope this, I hope this helps you and opens your heart and spirit. And that as uh, is written here, we never let ourselves drift away from this hope promised by this good news. Amen? Yes. Amen. Okay. So I hope that's been helpful and uh, blessings on you and thanks for being here. And uh, I'm sure we'll continue the conversation in, in many and various measures since. So uh, be who you are. Be who you are. Accept your identity, that you are the body of Christ. You are. You're the son who's loved, who's, who God is pleased with. You, you, you're in that very place. Let it all flow through you. Let it flow through me. And let's let that flow out into everything that we do. And uh, I think we'll be okay then. All right. We love you. Bless you. We're done. for listening to another Q York podcast. If you've been inspired by what you've heard today, then why not email us at info at qyork.co.uk and let us know who you are and where you're listening from. We love that you're listening to us and we'd love to hear from you too. Did you know you can also watch all of the talks from Q on our YouTube channel? Just go to youtube.com forward slash qchurchyork. We look forward to having you with us again soon. Until then, enjoy the quest.